This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, welcome to the second installment of the Winter, Twi- Winter 2015 UC Santa Barbara Distinguished Lecture Series. Tonight we have Peter Levine, partner uh, at Andreessen Horowitz. Prior to becoming a partner at Andreessen, um, Peter was an operator. One reason I wanted Peter to speak, and I was so happy when he graciously accepted, is he is a guy that's had two successful stints as an operator and two successful stints as a venture capitalist. You don't see that um, very often. A lot of people will come up through a banker track or a consulting track to VC, or they'll stay an operator. But he's actually crossed those paths not once, but twice. So, I'm, so I'm, I'm very much looking forward to his thoughts. So he was previously Senior Vice President and General Manager of Data Center and the Cloud Division at Citrix, a company I know a little bit about. Um, and he was responsible for, he ran that division. So it was just like running a company. He was responsible for revenue, product management, business development, strategic direction, kind of the whole ball of wax. He joined Citrix in 2007 when they purchased his company for $500 million. His company was ZenSource, which was providing enterprise class open source virtualization software. He is the CEO of a 600-person company. He built it up to a 600-person company, um, and their, their customer list was a who's who. Think of everyone in tech, Microsoft, Symantec, HP, Dell, et cetera. Before ZenSource, he was a partner at Mayfield Fund. So as I mentioned, he's been a venture capitalist, operator, operator, venture capitalist. That was his uh, first stint in the venture world. Before Mayfield, he was an early employee at Veritas. He was at Veritas when it was just a handful of people. Stayed there 11 years, took that company all the way up to 5,000 employees at $1.5 billion in revenue. That is an amazing experience to be able to start at a company that can basically fit in one room and to leave a company that, that has 6,000 employees. His roles there were varied, as you might imagine. He was responsible for uh, marketing, OEM sales, business development, as well as se- several product uh, divisions. Now, interestingly enough, he started his career as a software engineer. At Spectrum, uh, at Spectrum Software, and he was later a software engineer at MIT's Project Athena. He earned his bachelor's degree in engineering from Boston University, so he came into the business world from a technical standpoint, and he attended the Sloan School of Management at MIT. He's currently a lecturer at Stanford, where he teaches an amazing and highly popular sales class. So he's taking all of that practical experience that he learned in the real world and bringing it into the classroom, which I absolutely applaud him for. And as you guys know, I really work to bring people in here that have this balanced life of, of giving back to the community once they've had um, success, once they've benefited from the communities around them. Peter's no exception. Um, he's on several boards, including the Board of Trustees at Boston University, the National Outdoor um, Leadership School, as well as the Dean's Advisory Board at MIT Engineering. Peter also is living by one of my um, uh, credos, which is pick the place you want to live in and make it work. Peter could live anywhere in the world. The heart of venture capital is in Silicon Valley, yet Peter has chosen to live here with his family in Santa Barbara. Let's give him a warm welcome. Thanks again for coming. Yeah, we my really pleasure. appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, the students were very excited when I announced the uh, who was coming. Uh, so it's quite a clap. For, <laughs> so for um, 
My first question has to do with Veritas. So yeah. 11 years there, your undergraduate degree was in engineering, as I noted, yet you were instrumental in, in really driving the business. You weren't just driving the technical side of that business. How did you migrate into the business side of the world, or did you always feel like that was your natural proclivity? When I started there, I was a software engineer. There were a handful of people at the company. And uh, what, what sort of happened over the first couple of years is I built, I was a kernel engineer building these very technical projects. And what happened was is I got called out to go meet with some customers. I mean, I had this intimate knowledge of our technology. And uh, I was a TA in college, so I had some experience like teaching. And I was, was, always, I was always interested not so much in business, but in, uh, it sounds weird, educating Educating people, right? And yep. so I sort of rationalized my existence meeting customers as like, hey, I have this opportunity to actually educate our customers on our technology. And I knew it really well. And so I got called out with uh, you know, our sales guy, one person at the time, and I went out and could very uh, uh, correctly explain sort of what we were mm -hmm. doing, and the customers loved it. And from there, I just had an, I had an opportunity to actually move from engineering into sales, which is like, you know, all my engineering friends thought I was, you know, going to meet the devil. Because when you, <laughs> you know, sales and engineering, it's right. like two different worlds. And I actually moved over and had a, I had a great, I had a, one, a great career and a great time in those days. Um, you know, selling and sure. educating our customers, and they'd buy right. the product, and it was like, it was awesome. Right. So that was kind of the transition, but I always justified it by being a teacher, not a salesperson, because like, as soon as I said, hey, I'm a sales guy, it's like, right. you know, that, that's taboo. So you self-identified as an educator. Well, exactly. What's interesting <laughs> is we both teach a sales class. I teach yeah. one here at UCSB. Um, and Peter teaches at Stanford. And, and I think what I tell my students in the sales class, and, and Jermaine to everyone watching this as well as everyone in this room, sales, when you're doing it well, is, is, is problem solving. You're, you're finding solutions for your customers. You're not forcing things down their throats that they don't want or need. You're actually listening to them. You're internalizing their concerns, their desires, their resources. And hopefully, if you're doing your job well, you're coming back with potential solutions. So I think that's why Peter... Um, resonated with sales or teaching or educating or bringing people um, forward with technology because he was doing just that. He was actually solving problems and not just, hey, oh, here's what I got to sell. I guess I'm going to sell it today. So that's good advice. And I also think that any of you that have a chance to work in sales early in your career, even if it's maybe not something you think you want to do long term, it's a wonderful foundation for a future life uh, as an entrepreneur. Because as you know, it just comes in handy when you're recruiting people, raising money. You're, raising, you're, you're selling all the time. So might as well learn how to do it officially. Well, that's, that's cool. So how did you get to Mayfield? So you, you had that run. It was a very successful run. You helped build the company to a huge success. You probably had a million different opportunities. Why go in the direction of venture capital at that point? You're right. I did have a number of, of, uh, of job opportunities after Veritas, CEO, CEO of sure. public companies sure. after that. Um, as, as is my life today, well, I'm a venture capitalist today, I really enjoy working with entrepreneurs. And like the whole idea of me helping entrepreneurs, and 
I don't know, it's a little self-serving because, you know, yes, I'm a venture capital, I'm a professional investor, but it is, in a way, giving back to the community. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, you know, a little odd to say that, but for me, working with the entrepreneur and hearing a variety of different projects is, is it, it's actually very cool. When you're an operator, you have to go t- literally 10,000 feet deep in one area, right? Like, you have to know everything about your company, the sales model, the marketing, the finances, the HR group. You have to manage a lot yeah. of people all the way down. As a venture capitalist, you're really coaching a team of people, different groups of people, and so you spread yourself more horizontally across a portfolio of companies. And yep. at the time, and as I find now, that was actually, that it is really, um, really interesting and, and uh, quite intellectual in that sense because you have to really uh, span yep. a number of different projects. So I sort of knew it at the time. Um, maybe the next question would be, well, why, why did I go back? back? <laughs> and uh, we'll get very, okay, I, don't, I won't answer that now, but if that's the next question, I'll, yeah. No, it's not literally, but we'll definitely yeah. get to that. Well, I think there's, there's some good lessons there. Um, I think oftentimes when you dance <clears throat> in your career, everyone else has an idea of what you should do next. Yeah. I know it's happened to me. And we, I, you know, I sold a company to Citrix as well. And when we sold that company, it's the same thing. Everyone said, well, of course, you're going to be a CEO, and here's the kind of company you should run. And, right. and thank God, I was just like, I don't want to be a freaking CEO. Like, I, yeah. that just wasn't what I wanted to do. Yeah. But everyone I talked to said, well, that's the next step in your evolution. Yeah. And yeah, I ended yeah. up gravitating to angel investing, teaching, and now I'm a venture capitalist on a right. much smaller scale. But, and I do think that, that giving, it is a way to give back to the community because venture capital is such a catalyst to growth creates a lot of jobs, it creates a lot of opportunities. Mm-hmm. We're willing to take bets and risks that, that, you know, that the normal capital markets wouldn't take. Mm-hmm. So it's not entirely philanthropic by any means, mm-hmm. but it's certainly, it, there's certainly a societal benefit sure. to it. Or if, even if there isn't, I'm going to stick to uh, my belief that yeah, there is. Yeah, I'll, I'll go along. <laughs> All right. In a second, we'll take the, uh, the first student question. So, so you had your stint at Mayfield, and how long were you at Venture Capital there? Three years. Three years? Yeah. Okay. And you had portfolio companies that you were responsible for. Yeah. You made picks on, you know, mm-hmm. placed bets on companies. Yeah. Yeah. So three years into it, you decided to go back as an operator to ZenSource. Were you, was that a Mayfield company where they said we need help here or mm-hmm. it was completely unrelated? It was unrelated. Um, and what I realized at the time, here's the difference between me then and me now. Mm-hmm. And it's very profound. And I didn't realize it so much at the, well, I did realize it at the time. When I sat in board meetings in my first stint as a venture capitalist, and, you know, board meeting, you sit around the table, the CEO gives the update on the company, and some of the other folks come up and present in the board meeting, I often said to myself, I can do a better job than that person. Oh, and that's... I never say that. that I never say it anymore. I, <laughs> I never say it anymore. Oh, okay. And that was a very, that's a very dangerous position to be in. Yep. It's like if you're coaching, I use the, the coach quarterback sort of model in my brain, and when the coach thinks that he or she can be a better quarterback, right. that's a very dangerous situation. And I realized, like, I hadn't been a CEO. I had been groomed for yep. the 11 years while I was at Veritas right. to be a CEO. Yep. And I clearly had not gotten it out of my system. Like, I needed to go do that, not to get the check mark or whatever, 
but to get it out of my system so I would not feel like mm. every time I sat in a board meeting, either I can do a better job than that person or I wish I were doing that job, right? right. And so the Zen Source opportunity came up and I knew a bunch of people at the company and, yep. and so you know, I, I did it and I'm very happy that I did it to kind of get that out of my system. Do you think that was, <clears throat> so I'm trying to do in my, my, yeah. my head how old you were, was that also an issue of maturity? Do you think you also were just not quite mature as you, as you are now when you sit with the, with the founder? Uh, maybe. I don't know. I, I mean, for me, it was purely like, I don't know, maybe it was. I was immature then, immature now, <laughs> older. I don't know. But all I know is when I sat there, I wanted to be doing that job. Right, and it's right. like, this is a really bad situation. If I need to go do that job, I got to go right, do that do job, it. right? And, and get it done with. And, that. and once I've, now that I've done it, now I sit in a board meeting and say, thank God I don't have that job. Right. Like it is, right. you know, I know all the pain and problems and I am so happy being the coach and mentor to entrepreneurs. So it's worked out quite well and I, I, I know my place and that's, that's it works out really, really well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, so, the, that's the key to ha being happy, right? Yeah, Just really knowing where you fit. Yeah. I know I sort of went into venture capital slowly because I wasn't sure, do I always want to be that exactly. operator? Exactly. Am I going to be frustrated? Exactly. And believe me, I love not doing the heavy lifting. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> so you go to ZenSource and at the time you go, you um, replace the co-founder as CEO. Yeah. And that can often be a difficult situation because you can imagine there's a lot of emotion in a, in a co-founder who runs a company. It's sort of like, it's my company. Who the hell are you? And I'm really curious, how did that transition go? How did you handle it? Was it difficult? <laughs> well, was it easy? Did the co-founder stay around? So uh, it was one person. There were several early employees, co-founders, early employees. Right. So the CEO who was one of, I guess, three, maybe three people, the board actually took care of the problem before oh, I arrived, okay. which was great because it'd be really difficult to have the former CEO, then I show up and it's like, you know, just confusion. Yep. So that person was asked to leave. I still had a deal with the other co-founders and I really had a deal, more importantly, with building trust with the organization very quickly because here they replaced the co-founder with me. Who's this person? Like, you know, what does he know about our business? All that stuff. And so mm -hmm. that was really a very critical, it was a very, very critical part of me coming into the company. And I remember thinking long and hard about what are, you know, what are the first two weeks? What do I need to do to establish the rapport with the organization such that I don't, you know, the, the company doesn't have organ rejection by me yep. coming in yep. and, you know, this foreign body shows up and everyone, you know, immediately hates me and then goes to the board and said, well, the guy's an idiot and like, we don't want him either. Right. Yeah, right, right. So I was very conscious of that when I moved and it all worked out well. I think, I think with most things in, in business as an operator, venture person, whatever in business, being conscious of what you're trying to accomplish and what the issues are and playing deep, right? Like um, in that sense and thinking about the moves that you're going to go do is a very important aspect of senior management leadership in a company. And the, the deeper you can think, right. the more proactive you can be along the way. So I was... I was uh, I was actually happy with my ability to sort of think ahead and say, okay, here's all the things that I need to do, fully understanding that this engineering-centric culture that right. was in the company right. 
could very easily, you know, reject me as the CEO. And look, just because you're the CEO does not mean a thing. I mean, if the if the if the troops reject you, you're out. Right. It doesn't matter. Like it's not like the military. Yeah, it's not. You know, <laughs> even in the military, if the troops, True. you know, if True. they don't follow you, like you're True. out. Right. And so it's very important that you you know for me that I establish that rapport and that trust. Once you est- once I establish that, then I could actually lead because people say, yeah, like you know, guy actually knows what he's talking about. Right. We'll go do whatever we were trying to go do. Yeah, well, it sounds like you came in with the humility and deference of an outsider, of like, help me understand yeah. what's going on. What I, what I find is if you have that adequate level of self-awareness and you put yourself in the other person's shoes yeah. and literally think, what are they thinking? I know what I'm thinking. What are they thinking when I come into this room? And they're probably thinking, you know, who the hell is this guy? Exactly. So exactly. you want to show them, like, hey, you don't want to you know who the hell I am? I'm a guy that wants to make this work. Yeah, yeah. Help me make it work. Yeah, I... I uh so notwithstanding, like I was very self-aware and all that, we had a big, um, we had a big office in Cambridge, UK. That's where the technology was uh, out of Cambridge University. So one of my first, the core engineering group was in Cambridge, and one of my first uh, activities was to go to Cambridge and meet all the engineers who were working there. They were really the founders. You know, there's sort of the ten people who matter, and right. it's like I got to get in front of each of these each of these folks and you know, basically say, how can I help you? And you yeah. know, ask the right questions and all that. And one of the engineers, like even with all my self-awareness, having been an engineer and all that, I remember this like it was yesterday. I'm sitting here with the engineer and he would only like answer in one oh, wow. word answers. Like, what's your name? Ah, what, you know, what do you do here, founder? Uh, <laughs> Well, how can I help you? I don't know. You know, like, and we had like an hour schedule, oh. and like, and after five minutes, it was like, well, I guess there's nothing to talk about. And he got up and left, and it was wow. just like, and it, yeah, he became like my best friend over time, right? Yeah. But it was just like, it was, I'm t- like, it was, that meeting was painful. Yep. You know, and there's nothing you can do. Like, it's like, hey, you know, well, be, you, win be them, my, you win them over time. Like, you, you, you win them over time. And it's like, you know, just just sitting there saying, hey, please be my friend or right, help right. me out or that. It's like, no, you earn it. And yep. it was it was eye opening. Yeah, well, some people, it's they're only going to believe your actions. Exactly. So that guy, he needed exactly. to see your actions. He needed to see it. It took yep. a period of time. But, yep. And uh, then they often do become your best yeah, ally. Yeah, we got there. But it was just <laughs> one of those meetings. It was crazy. Like how... It was just, yeah, brutal. One of those meetings. Well, we'll take the first uh, student question. Hey. Hey. I feel like you touched upon this a little bit earlier, but looking back to when you started as a software engineer, Mm -hmm. did you ever aspire to become a CEO? And was that always the goal in your career? So when I started, the answer is no, with a a little bit of a caveat. What I wanted to do as a software, when I was at Veritas, I thought that I would go up through the ranks of engineering management. Like at that time, I was an individual coder, right? Like writing code. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll become an engineering manager. That's what I thought. And it was interesting. I remember this meeting. I met with the CEO early on, maybe six months after I had joined the company. He, you know, had lunch with all the employees, one-on-one lunches over, over time which is an important thing. I kind of took that from him as mm-hmm. a great thing. Yep. And he asked me, he said, what do you want to do when you grow up? 
this is probably nine months, maybe a year into it. And I said, and at that point I answered, I said, I'd like to be a CEO. Hmm. So I kind of converted over. And he said to me, he said, you don't know what you don't know about being a CEO. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And he said, you need to know how to manage and you need to know how to sell. And if you don't know those two things, you're putting your organization at extreme risk. He said, you don't know how to do either of those. And at that point was when I, so he said, why don't you go out with, this is back to the sales thing, why don't you go out and hang out with some of the sales guys to learn that first? And then I did that and then um, uh, moved into management, which was the second part. And, you know, thankfully, I had a mentor who took say, me under his wing. Like, it was awesome, right? From this one lunch. And I now teach with, with this person, and uh, we're very good That's friends. Fantastic. Like, we've been friends. Our, he's kind of like my father. He's a mentor. Right. He doesn't even remember that one. <laughs> and that's the other thing that's yep. really interesting yep. about being a CEO and, a me- and having employees is quite often you will have a very meaningful conversation. And I get this now. You'll have meaningful conversations with yep. employees and people in the organization, and you won't even remember that you had the conversation. And to that person, it's the most important bit of information in their entire career yep. is really interesting. And so I've learned that, you know, as a CEO, you have to, you have to also be careful what you say because everyone hangs on every word and right. all of that. So it's, it was really quite interesting, but that's how it happened. Well, I love that story. We, the, the class here got to see my mentor. I brought my mentor and he's a lifelong mentor to a lot yeah. of people. And he had a similar story. If you guys remember, somebody made an offhand comment to him, totally changed his career trajectory and then he went back to that guy years later and said, hey, remember when you said that to me? And the guy was like, I don't know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's like, I don't know. I said something. <laughs> I, say I don't even remember stuff. meeting you. Who are right, you? Right, yeah. right. Yeah. But it's that whole thing about mentors <laughs> see you who, they see who you could be. Exactly. Your friends see you who you are. Mentors see you of who you could be. Exactly. And they, and they help you see that. Exactly. They help you point, they point yeah. that out and say, I think yes. you could be that guy. So it's really important as you start your career, if there's a, you know, a takeaway, um, Find yourself a mentor uh, that you can latch onto. It's yep. really, really important. It's not like this fluffy, stupid thing. And find somebody who's senior who can actually shepherd you along. Yep. If a mentor sees your potential, they'll forgive a lot of mistakes along the way, which I found. Like Absolutely. I made so many mistakes. I should have been fired a hundred times. <laughs> but my mentor said, "No, I believe in you." Yep. Like, and it's really, really like having that relationship. Hugely, hugely important. I absolutely concur. In fact, I tell you guys, don't wait. Get that mentor now. Try to get a mentor while you're still in school. Not necessarily the mentor that's going to be your career mentor, but there are definitely people you can reach out to now that can help you, and they might even help you get that first job. So don't wait. Entrepreneurs, never wait. So Martin Mikos has been in here before. Martin was, uh, amongst other things. I know him. um, Yeah, so he came in here. He was CEO of MySQL. And um, he talked about the difficulty of selling an open source solution, making money from an open source. As you got, some of you guys might know, uh, might not know, open source often connotates free, and the open source community can often be hostile mm-hmm. to anyone trying to charge for it. So Peter comes into this organization that had great technology. It was built on open source. How did you turn that into such a profitable business? Um, well, when we look, open, open source is... I'll, and I've written a blog on this. 
The open source model as pioneered by Red Hat, for those of you who spend any time in this space, is a horrible business model. And I know services, I'm being filmed. It's terrible. Yeah. It's, it's only Red Hat has been successful with that. So now open source is prolific everywhere now, and there are different ways of making money with open source. Yep. One of the ways that we did with ZenSource was we had an open core, which is the the core components, and then we built proprietary software around the edges and then packaged that whole, uh, the whole thing up as a product and sold it for a license fee. Now, the problem with that is that the open source community, when you do that model, is they often, the community itself will say like, well, if you're going to go charge for this piece of software, right. we'll just go write this in open source. Right. And so it's a, it's, it's, it's a very, very difficult model to get right, those, those models, because you end up in some ways competing with the very community that you're trying to embrace, right? right? It, like, in, so it's a very, very complicated kind of, you know, either dance or spinning plates on sticks and not letting any of the plates drop on the floor. Now, I'm very bullish on new open source models uh, which is what I call open source as a service. Mm -hmm. So if I run an open source technology in the cloud, I'm on the board of GitHub, for those of you who may know the company GitHub. GitHub is at the epicenter of all everything open source. And they don't sell an open source product. They do not do the Red Hat model of open source. What they have is GitHub in the cloud. They have their software, an open source software that runs their technology, it's a software as a service model, and people then pay money to use that service. The other model, which is related to this, I don't, you know, I don't know if anybody realizes this, but if I were to ask you who the biggest open source company in the world is today, well, I'll ask you. Google. Google, close, Facebook. Oh, really? Facebook is the biggest open source company in the world. I'm, you know, you even say in Google, many people would say Red Hat, mm. right? And so you'd say Facebook, open source, yet they make lots of money, but they're an open source company. So what they do is they take all their open source, they package that open source stuff up, and they offer it to all of us as a service. And then you know, ads pay for whatever. However, they generate their business model through advertising and all their all their ways of monetizing. They are actually monetizing open source through ad revenue. That's an interesting model, mm -hmm. or the GitHub model of putting it out in the cloud. And so, but the Red Hat model right. of pay, you know giving away the software for free and then having somebody pay a service license on that yep. is a very, very difficult model. I love open source. I just don't like the 1.0 business model and love the 2.0 business models, which allow companies, I mean, the reason why you, like, companies need to get paid, and they need to get paid because that supports innovation. Without companies getting paid, like this whole open source model, it's like, oh, we'll build this stuff for free and don't get paid for it. Right. Well, what engine, you know, who's going to go work at a company where they don't pay you? Like, the, the innovation cycle just doesn't work. So companies need to get paid. It's not a bad thing to get paid because guess what? We can now go hire engineers. So when you have that model and, and a company can get paid 
for their innovation on the back of open source, beautiful model. Did you have so, to shift? Uh, <laughs> no, it's a good answer. Did you have to shift the culture? Because I know we had Buddy Help, which was a free version to go to my PC. Yeah. And it was brutal because there's people in the company that didn't want us to kill the free product, the internet should be they, free, yeah, etc. Yeah. Did you have that contingent? At ZenSource, I mean, we were sort of this hybrid. We did not get it all right. Mm. I'm saying that even since then, I mean, we did okay because we had this proprietary thing and, you know, kind of we sold this binary. That, was f that worked okay. The newer open source models as a service or different business models right. far, far exceed the older models in my mind. Yeah. And well, I so think I love the market it. was figuring it out. Exactly. Well, and the try market. This, try that. Exactly. Now, now that we have cloud computing and we can run things from the cloud. Yep. Open source makes a tremendous amount of sense because I didn't just go right. run the open source in the cloud. And it's very funny, a customer doesn't care that it's open source. No. But when it's run on premise and I actually hand open source to the customer, they say, well, that's open source. It ought to be for free. Right. Same software. Right. Well, I remember when we sold, so we sold our company to Citrix in 04, they were worried that we were using open source, like somewhere on the back. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, yeah, yeah. Now, that was an issue. Like, now, this new, this the new generation of innovation right now in Silicon Valley and around the world in software and applications and cloud computing is all run on the back of open source projects. Right. It's all open source, right? And thankfully, the industry has now found interesting ways to monetize open source to justify the investment in making those projects yep. go. And then you get the whole power of everybody. Exactly. You get it. people testing it. You get yeah. people working on it. You know, so, um, so I'm very bullish on open source and, and what's happening. But Martin's world and my old world yeah, at yeah, ZenSource, yeah. those were very, very difficult days in terms of open source monetization. But you guys both pulled a win now. So. We did. We did. But many companies didn't. No, that's right. Many didn't. We'll take the next question. Being on the board of Udacity and many other software companies, with the leading technology in uh, Silicon Valley, where do you see the future of education, both in the short term and the long term? It's a great question on, uh, on you know, MOOCs, massively online courses, open courses, um, versus something like this, right? Um, I think that uh, I, my sense is is that over time, the internet and online education becomes an adjunct activity to what happens in the classroom, and I think that you know kind of the combination of the two can work quite well. Um, the The use of edu of online education, what's working quite well, and I have my experience with Udacity right now is training employees inside of companies on new technologies. So, mm -hmm. we, you know, education is not just sitting in college. Education, we want to, I think, we need to think about education as a lifelong experience. Now, you know, like, why when you get out of college are you done being educated? Right. And I mean, it's kind of stupid that we have, it's like, okay, I'm done with college, I don't need to learn anymore. In fact, what organizations are seeing now is that to retrain and train current employees on new technologies is a way to dramatically improve lifelong education and technical skills and to retain employees who have been around for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing that right now. And um, 
I haven't seen online education being as disruptive as folks may have intended it to be to say, well, there's going to be no more colleges because everyone can just sit at a computer and look at the screen. And I think what's happened is, as we've looked at, we're looking at now the view of sort of lifelong education in companies as opposed to, you know, online education necessarily replacing colleges, right? I think we can use it together yep. to have a more effective uh, college experience. Yeah, well, I think this, you guys are sitting in, in, in the real world right now. This is probably going to be viewed 400, 500,000 times yeah. around the world. We're experiencing it live right now, but people can continue to digest this content, learn from it uh, in, the, in the safety of their own home or office yeah. or whatever. So yeah. it's, I, I think it's nice to have that hand in glove. It's not one yeah. or the other. Yeah. It's a that, great way to extend the classroom. That, and that's how I'm seeing it expand. I mean, we see it at Stanford and MIT. I mean, we see, the, the, we see online and, and sort of old school kind right. of coming together. And I think that's a nice, it's a nice blended model. Um, so we'll see where all that goes. Yep, good. So I know my days at um, Citrus Online, I have some war stories I tell and just certain things that burned in my mind, and I use them in the classroom, but I also use them when I talk to CEOs. Do you have any stories at ZenSource that you find yourself going back to or just sort of things you learned there yeah. that you don't want to see replicated in your portfolio? Ton, you know, yeah, there's, <laughs> How much time I, do we have? <laughs> you know, when, when uh, first of all, when you're in a startup, like, there's so many things that come to mind. Um, when you're in a startup, the, your, your day is filled with the most extreme positive and negative emotions every day. So you come in in the morning, and like, yep. there's a deal that the, somebody closed, and like, you're on a high because like, somebody actually bought something. It's like, <laughs> hey, this is great. And then in the afternoon, the product doesn't work because there's bugs, right? And you're gonna, it's going to suffer a six-month delay. Yep. So, like, all of a sudden, you've gone from euphoria that somebody's buying something to absolute depression that, you know, the product doesn't just in the course of a day, right? And, you know, what what one of my one of my guidelines for CEOs because this happens well every startup company yep. every entrepreneur faces these highs and lows in the course of minutes and hours, right? is things are never as bad or as good as you think they are. Mm -hmm. So that's one rule. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, because yep. you have to, like, modulate yourself. Other, I mean, it's a rough, rough job, yep. you know? Always trying to figure out the problems. All You know, it's very difficult. So kind of balancing that, that's one thing that I personally experienced. The other thing, two more things. One is, when I got to ZenSource, um, there was no, the product hadn't been released yet. And I asked the engineering manager at the time, I'm like, when, is this, when do we expect this product to be released? Probably I should have asked it before I joined, but you, know, you don't know all the questions. That's another thing. When you go to interview at a company, you can't ask every question. It's only like after you're there a month, you right, really know right. everything. You totally. can't ask everything. Yep. So I asked him, he's like, well, we don't have a date. I'm like, well, what do you mean you don't have a date? I'm like, what's the criteria for releasing the product? And this is like a real company. It's not like some, you know, like we had great investors, all that. They're like, we'll release the product when we have the same competitive features as our competitor. And the competitor was a company, VMware, which had like 5,000 people, right? right? And I told them, I said, look, 
if you ever think that we're going to have the same feature set, like I don't care if our engineers pound for pound are 100 times more efficient, we're never going to get there. We will never release a product under that criteria. So what I said was, look, let's pick like three features that we want to have in our product and define a date and we're going to release a product on that date. Mm -hmm. And like that was, it sounds so obvious now, but it was one of the best decisions that we made as a company was to release the product. And then people could use it and, you know, no one buys the first version anyway, so it didn't really matter. Right. And then we, like, got customer feedback and could go figure out, um, you know, part two of that. Sure. So, um, sure. You've got to start, right? You yeah. Just, it's so about that was, getting started. Yeah, so that was, that was, the, uh, that was the other part. The other... The other, uh, the other takeaway, which I learned as being a CEO, this wasn't specific to ZenSource, is the most profound uh, role that a CEO influences in the company is the culture of the organization. And what do I mean by that? When you're the CEO, everyone watches yep. every move you make. If you blink your eyes twice in the morning when you come in, I guarantee you over the course of a couple of weeks, every employee blinks their eyes twice when they come in. If you walk a certain way, everyone will walk a certain way. If you speak in a certain way, people will speak the exact same way. Your behavior is emulated to a, such a refined degree, it's, it's really quite remarkable. And I, I, I wrote this blog, but I have this joke, is, you know, if I were in my office at ZenSource as the CEO, and I just said, boy, I'm thinking, wouldn't it be nice if my office were pink? <laughs> just thinking, the next day my office would be pink. <laughs> like, you can't even think out loud because right, people right. hang on every word. It's like, whoa, CEO wants his office pink. We better paint it pink. And it may, right. so the culture, and, and, and you can see this. It's really, really interesting. I've been inside of huge companies, Microsoft and Oracle, you know, uh, Symantec, huge companies, and my, our own companies. Those companies slow, so closely resemble the founding CEO, it's amazing. They all have different personalities, and they resemble the leader who's in charge, right? These are 100,000-person companies, 50,000, whatever, and it's, like, remarkable. Like, why are these companies different? They build technology products. How could they be different? Why? Mm -hmm. Because the person at the top, it's amazing. And, and when you're the CEO, you absolutely experience and see that. And, you know, if I came to work every day with a suit and tie on, everyone would start coming. I'm telling you, like, whatever, it's, it's really, really, really amazing. Yeah. So that's the other thing. So I tell our CEOs, like, whatever you do, people are going to follow you. Right. And for good or bad. And so you walk the talk, but like whatever you walk, that's what people are going to do. It's incredible. Yep. Like it or not. People are gonna... Like it or not. So one thing that's important there is having that small group of lieutenants around you yeah. that'll call BS maybe when the door's closed. You, you know, you got to get that group because if everybody's hanging on every word and doing everything you say, yeah. you don't have sounding boards. Yeah. Like you need yeah. to be able to say, what do you think of this? Yeah. And know the person's going to go, I think it's yeah. a lousy yeah. idea. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, in all of our environments, including venture capital, you want to get to the truth. Yeah. No question about it, right? right? And if you have a bunch of yes people nodding their head because they think that's what you want to hear, it right. doesn't work very well. It doesn't work well for making investments, 
and it doesn't work well for shaping the strategic or tactical direction of a company, right? You yep. want people to actually debate and all of that, and you have to be very careful. So, so, you know, so, so how do you do that, right? Well, one of the ways to do it is to not be the person who speaks in the meeting. Mm. Like, let's say you have a meeting. If I speak and I know that everyone's going to hang on every word, then me speaking and me giving all the ideas completely defeats the right. purpose right. of getting people to respond. As soon as I speak, that becomes, as a CEO, that becomes right. the that's word. What, that's what we're going to do. So the way to overcome that, and, and you know, this is very hard to do, is you go into a meeting and say, what do you guys think? And you stop. And even though I may have a lot of clear ideas, I want to hear from the group. Mm -hmm. And you have to practice that because <laughs> it's very hard to not, when Jump you're yeah. the top dog, to yeah. not just go in there and say, look, here's what we got to go do, and I know this and that, and go do it. Yep. Right? And sometimes you have to go do that because it can't be total consensus. But if you ask the questions up front and then wait and then give your answer and then give a summarized view, that works much better, and that's how you elicit the you know, the truth. Right, right. Because they, they're not biased by, you know, no one's biased by... Right, by your truth. My, you know, my yeah, non-truth. Your right? version like, of the truth. Yeah. When you sold um, ZenSource to uh, Citrix, it's funny because we know the same yeah. people that uh, Peter sold it to. Yeah. I sold a company too, so we should uh, talk about that off camera. Um, so I'm sh I know I made some mistakes that um, I talk about in class pretty freely, and I talk to my <laughs> entrepreneurs about it when it's appropriate. Were there things that you would have done differently, or is there that exit? Can you share some of that with your entrepreneurs now? I mean, did they approach you? Did you get yeah. bankers? Was it so? So um, first of all, when you go build a company, you don't build it to sell it. Right. That's rule number one. So, and I knew that before this acquisition happened. You build a company for franchise value, longevity public company, dominate the landscape, number one in your market, that's what you want to go build. Anytime you go build a company that you have talked your mind into saying, oh, well, it's okay if I sell, right. all of a sudden you're building your company to be acquired. And the problem with that is it's not a great company because you, you don't have you, you can't build all the pieces with the conviction of this has to be an independent franchise. So we were building ZenSource to be an independent franchise. And when you do that, you get the best offers to come in mm -hmm. because you have optionality. When an offer comes in, you can then decide, okay, how does the, you know, given what's the return on those dollars coming in now versus us going it alone? But if you've built your company for acquisition and you have no optionality at the, that point, guess what? You have no choice, right? right? right. So, um, so that's the first thing that I, you know, we, in fact, our investment philosophy at Andreessen Horowitz is to only invest in entrepreneurs who want to want to hit the home run and want to build a franchise. Now, along the way, acquisition offers come up. Like, of course, we understand that, and then you have to go make a choice on, you know, whether you take it or not. But I'd say that's the biggest takeaway from that particular mm -hmm. activity: is build your company for standalone value and again everything else will take and care just, of itself. Yeah, be opportunistic. Yeah. So I have to thank you publicly here because when we sold our company to Citrix, the Citrix stock was at nineteen dollars a share. 
I kept a lot of my stock because I believed in Citrix. And thanks to Peter and his hard work of his team, I think I sold my last shares at around 60, 65. So thank you very much. I I owe you a beer. (laughs) So you stuck around at Citrix for a while. I stayed a a year or so, but Uh you stuck around, which I found interesting. What what kept you motivated? What kept you excited to stay? Um, First of all, the deal for our company was a three-year, we had a three-year earn-out kind of, you know, golden handcuffs, whatever you want to call it. So um, now, however, notwithstanding the money, I had a long talk with our executive team before we joined Citrix. And I said, for the next three years, we're going to go do this like we mean it. Right. And because I have been on the other at at Veritas, I ran our M&A group, merger and acquisition group. So I bought I bought a lot of companies. And the most frustrating thing for me was when you bought a company and you looked an entrepreneur in the eye and you say, are you committed and all this? And they nod their head, yes, I'm, you know, because you're paying them a lot, of course, before you do the deal, like, yes, I'm committed, I'm going to stick around and all that. And three months after you acquire the company, the person evaporates. And it is horribly frustrating and it's misleading. And, you know, I'll never work, anybody who's ever told me that, I will never work with that person again. Yep. Right. And what 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 I and and I had like very visceral memories of those conversations. And at Citrix, the CEO looked me in the eye and said, "Are you guys committed?" He did, he did that with me too. And I nodded my head and I told our team, I said, "We have made a commitment." to do the best possible work while we're here, and we're going to go do that. And if any of you are not willing to do it, then we can't do this acquisition. I mean, I remember having that conversation, and it worked out really well. Like, we really worked hard, and that was it. It was like fulfilling the promise that we made, not in 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 a very positive way. And I continued to get more responsibility in that. It was a great company to work for. Um... But it was that conversation and our commitment up front that made it all sort of work out. And, you know, I can tell you, when you make commitments like that and you live by your commitment, it wasn't on a piece of paper that I had to work hard. There was no written language that said it. Everyone's happy at the end. And that's the best, you know, another takeaway is no matter what, you know, nothing can be written on paper. It doesn't really matter. Do what you say and do it great. Right. And if you do that, people will want to come back and work with you. And like this is a relationship. There's all kinds of things that come into it. And so I'm very proud of the work our team did and, you know, the integration we had with Citrix. Mm -hmm. But it was really great. Once you got in that organization, you you did quite well. So the same guy that Peter's talking about, Mark Templeton, who I could still consider a very good friend, he came into my office, shut the door, did the same thing. Yeah. And I gave a different answer. Um, and I think, and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back with this answer. It wasn't particularly a great answer. The message to you guys is be honest. Yeah. I could have lied to him. Yeah. He sat there and he said, John, I need to know, are you going to be here? And I said, I don't know, probably not. Yeah. He was like, what? I said, I'm not going to sit here and tell you yes let me get in the organization. Let me see if it's a good fit for me. I'm yeah. an entrepreneur. I've always been you know, at the beginning of a company's life. And so when I did leave, it was a very easy conversation. Right. He's like, John, you're the only guy that told me right. you might leave. And I, and I so respect that you told right. me that. Absolutely. And we're still friends. I mean, yep. he's come here and spoke. You yeah. know, we're, we, we have a really good relationship. So Same. you can't it's be afraid to tell the truth 
And if that acquired the deal, then there wasn't a good deal to begin with. Exactly. So. so you go back to venture capital. You had a good run at Citrix. You go back to venture capital with Andreessen. I get this question a lot. I'm sure you get it a lot, too. Students ask me, so what, I, what, what can I do to be a venture capitalist? And I have a pat answer. I'm sure you have one, too. Just for the record, there's fewer venture capitalists than there are professional baseball players. So wow. go play professional baseball. You have better odds than being a professional venture capitalist. But anyway, <laughs> well, the numbers actually I didn't work. I know that. Yeah. Um, uh, so at our firm, all of our general partners, so the way a venture capital firm works is there are general partners who make investments and sit on boards of companies. Every venture firm has general partners. At Andreessen Horowitz, we have eight general partners. I'm one of those general partners. And then there's, at our firm, we have a large team of people who help our companies, help us do deals. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of um, operational teams that either work with companies or help us do deals. Um, so what we say, and of the eight general partners, all of us have been founders and or CEOs have a technical background, and have built scaled companies. So I would say to you, if you want to be a, a VC, a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, go out and build a successful company that is at scale, you know, a big franchise business, and then come back and you can talk to us. So it's, uh, we, and we've deliberately set things up that way because we believe that we can be better mentors and coaches right. having been there, done it, than not. And I'm telling you, like, I believe that 100%. I can be a great mentor and great coach because I've, I've seen everything along the way. And, uh, you know, other venture firms have different models. There's other ways. You know, another way into venture capital is you start as a junior associate in a firm and you work your way up. And... Uh, Many firms work that way. It's a sort of an apprenticeship model. Right. Our firm doesn't work that way. What we want to do is bring in folks who, um, who have lots of uh, operational experience and depth in their markets to be better coaches and board members. Yep. Well, we're seeing, I think, in general, a shift more towards the operator venture yeah. capitalist. I mean, there's always going to be room for the banker slash consultant, but it, there's no substitute for being able to sit in a board meeting and say, look, I've made yeah. this decision not everything I'm. Not every decision I made was correct, but at least I made it, and I can give you that experience. The, uh, you know, the the big risk to that model is the the very element that I highlighted before is yeah. you're sitting there as a former CEO right. with a, you know, junior CEO in the front of the room, and you know the risk is that that if you haven't internalized this and and appropriated your action in the room. It's like you take over the room, yep. and you want to run the company. And that's the flip side to that. So you know, as former operators, you want to be very self-aware and careful that yep. you don't jump into that role. I mean, I, again, I've explained how I'm, I'm completely out of it and thrilled well, that I'm not doing and, and it. And you have to constantly remember and remind yourself, I don't know enough about this company to make these. Yeah, I can you, give my opinion. No, absolutely. And I do think about that, but it's still remarkable to right. me how, you know, there are stories of former sure. operators sure. sitting there at the board meeting, sure. hijacking the board meeting, and basically running the company from yep. the board meeting. Yep. And there's no, way, there's no way to do it. Yeah. You only come in, you parachute in once a month, once a quarter, and see a handful of information. How could, 
How could you possibly have better, more detailed information than the management team running the company? It's impossible. Absolutely agree. So... But that's what makes a VC like us look good. <laughs> so yeah. we'll take the next student question. Yeah. Uh, hi. hi. Uh, so in your bio, you talk about how you really enjoy mountaineering mm-hmm. and often compare it to building a company. Yeah. So I was wondering what aspects of building a company are most comparable to mountaineering and why? Um, you know, mountaineering, I've been on a lot of big mountain mountaineering e- expeditions, right? And building a company is like being on an expedition. So the first thing that I often view as a parallel is you have to know, you know, what mountain are we climbing? And so in a company, it's like, what are we trying to build? Where are we headed, right? And you have a lot of different choices. Once you say, okay, we're going on this mountain, what are all of the tactical steps we need to take to get to the top? You got to, you know, let's say you're out for a month. So we got a ferry gear to Camp One, and then we have to come down, and we have to prepare, and we have to watch out for bad weather, and we have to watch out for crevasses, and we have to move to the next camp. And so it becomes the tactical execution of hitting this strategic objective, which is getting to the top. And that's a very physical uh, that's a very physical endeavor, and building a company is sort of a mental endeavor. But to me, they're like. It, they, they sort of combine together, and, and it's hard. I mean, when you're climbing one of these yeah. big mountains and you've got a big pack on and a sled and all this stuff, it's a very, very difficult, every day is a grind. You have ups and downs, and so there's a lot of emotional pieces to it. There's a team that helps you do all this stuff. You split up the weight and the loads and all that. So I find it to be, for me, very analogous um, in terms of how I think about it. and I mean, there's probably a, many, many different sort of physical activities to building a company. To me, I just happen to have done, you know, a lot of mountain climbing, so therefore it's similar to me, but there's probably many other activities that would be similar. Yeah, well, I love analogies like that. That's how I teach through analogies, yeah. and I think that's how entrepreneurs yeah. often think through analogies. So that was the second most popular question, the mountaineering question. Wow. We had about 200 questions um, submitted, but the most popular question mm-hmm. I get to ask, and we'll end on this one. So okay. you and, and the other Andreessen Horowitz partners pledged, have pledged half of your lifetime income earned um, as a VC to charity. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear the genesis of that decision and then yeah. anything you want to share about the charities that are benefactors of that or beneficiaries. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the genesis, I remember the, the conversation. We were just, we were at an offsite this a while back and we were sitting around the table and we started to talk about philanthropy and the importance of giving back. And it was really interesting because you could see around the table, we hadn't talked about this as a group. But everyone's like, oh, yeah, like, like I want to give to this group, and I want to give to that group, and I want to make a difference, because like, you can really make a material difference yep. By, yep. by being philanthropic. And what was amazing to me was everyone around the table, we had fewer general partners at that point in time, but everyone around that table was, had in them the desire to be highly philanthropic. So we just said, okay, like, like, what if we all committed for half of our venture capital earnings to go to philanthropy? And I, I mean, in like a split second, I'm like, I'm in. Wow. One, I'm in. And two, 
I am so happy that I'm working with a group of like my like it bonded with me. Like, yeah, I work with really famous people and all this and like and it was just one of these things, like it was a common bond all of a sudden to be able to say we're gonna go do this. And um and now we do, you know, we're starting to do it. And uh, many of the boards that I sit on, and you know, I'm into the outdoors, so Knowles is a big, uh, a big um, area where I spend my time. I want to spend time and and dollars together, like, um, and I love that stuff. I love. It's, it's just it. It really does, you know, people, you always read these things like giving makes you feel good, like you read it on those, I don't know, napkins or fortune cookies or whatever. <laughs> but it really does. Like yes, it really, it works. like you really can make a difference. And, um, and I'm thrilled to be part of that, right? And thrilled to be doing it. And hopefully we'll do more of it. I mean, we do, uh, you know, I say we, my, my family, outdoor, for me, outdoor education. Uh, environmentalism are sort of the areas that we tend to kind of focus on, but um, we'll see over over time where where all that goes. It's kind of we're in the early days. Our firm is not very old, so we're you know still waiting for companies to do whatever they're going to go do. And so over time, we'll uh, expand, kind of probably expand the reach and all that. But it's 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 one of the great things about being at my firm is that whole, um, you know, kind of philanthropic DNA that runs through the organization, and it's, it's, re- it's really quite awesome. Well, it's wonderful that you guys did that. You have a, a very high-profile, big megaphone, so you're, you're being a great role. I mean, it's great you did it in isolation, but the, there's a huge impact beyond just your firm and beyond just the dollars you're going to give away because I think it's a great role model for other people in tech. Sure. Yeah. To, to really put their money where their mouth is. Yeah. And it's one thing to talk about philanthropy, but to give a substantial, I mean, 50%, a, a very substantial amount. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully it's a very substantial you amount. You never know. I mean, hopefully our companies, if you're out there, just do well, and then we'll, right. we'll deliver on that well, it's promise. a substantial percentage. Yeah, yeah okay. it is a substantial. Yes. And hold all of yes. We hope it's a substantial percentage as well. Yes. All right. Well, Peter, thank you so much. Thank we really you. appreciate it. Thank you. Happy to be here. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.